Today, answers matter more than ever before. That's why IBM is helping businesses manage customer questions with Watson Assistant. It's conversational AI designed to work for any industry. Let's put smart to work. Visit ibm.com slash Watson Assistant. Welcome to The Sporting Life with Jeremy Schapp. Over the next hour, Jeremy is joined by the former director of the National Institutes of Health, Dr. Harold Varmus. We have to proceed with caution. You know, if we miss a season, it's not the end of the world. And more important to think about what happens to our society next year and be sure we're not uh, decimated by, by this virus. This is a formidable foe. And baseball Hall of Famer Rod Carew. You know, I almost killed my dad. Uh, when he came home one night, he was really drunk, and I was about 12 years old, and he passed out on the bed, and I said, here's my chance. And then my mom came running in, and she says, don't forget baseball, and I stopped. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Here's Jeremy Schapp. Welcome to another edition of The Sporting Life. It's been more than two months since the world of sports, in the U.S. anyway, shut down completely. A few sports are inching back. MMA was back last weekend. NASCAR is back this weekend. There are plans afoot for golf and for tennis and for some other sports as well. At this point, the NFL says everything is on schedule for training camps in July for the start of the regular season in September. But there's still so many questions to be answered. There are so many safety considerations, obviously. Our first guest is one of America's most eminent scientists, Dr. Harold Varmus. In the 1990s, he was the director of the National Institutes of Health and from 2010 to 2015, the director of the National Cancer Institute. 31 years ago, he was a co-recipient of the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine, and he's currently the director of the Varmus Lab at Weill Cornell Medicine. Dr. Varmus, it, it is an honor, uh, to have you here and not just because you go back, uh, about 70 years with my, with my family on, from the South Shore of Long Island. Thank you very much, and I hope it's more of a pleasure than an honor. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's both. It's both. But um, let, let me start by asking you, you know, I, I set it up in the introduction. You know, major sports are still trying to figure out in this country when they can resume. You know, we've seen it in Germany. They're playing soccer now. In Korea and Taiwan, they're playing baseball. What do you think it's going to take uh, for sports to start up again in America without endangering the safety of everyone involved? Well, I think as you uh, indicated in your opening remarks, this, this is not going to be a binary switch. It's not going to be as though there's one finding and suddenly the light switches on and now we go, we return back to normal sporting life. Uh, we have to think through this problem uh, in relation to the kind of sports uh, that is involved, how much contact there is, how many people are involved, how um, and uh, how the audience is assembled and uh, uh, how much it takes to finance uh, the, the sporting activity in a reasonable way. I do think that in these conversations about sports, we ought to take a little bit more time to think about uh, what it means for people to play these sports on their own. For example, while I, my major role as a spectator of sports is focused on the U.S. Open and other uh, tennis tournaments, I also play. And uh, a month ago, we were told by the U.S. Tennis Association that, that people shouldn't play because of the possibility of the balls being a vector for the virus and people using the same water fountain and so forth. And I think all of us who play tennis and love it and need it for, uh, for 
exercise and for staying in shape, have to think carefully about how we approach the game. And I think uh, it's worth thinking about that because uh, whether it's sandlot softball or uh, jogging or riding a bike or, or going rowing, um, we have to think through how we behave uh, when we ourselves are engaged in sports, which from a medical point of view is uh, uh, at least as important, if not more important, than simply going as a spectator to watch your favorite team or your favorite um, men's single player uh, perform. Um, and uh, I, uh, in the case of tennis, for example, you know we don't shake hands anymore. We, uh, we're careful about the ball in one way or another, you know, face touching, wash your hands afterwards. Um, be sure that uh, if, if you're playing at a public court that you're um, you're, you're washing your hands and, and uh, being careful about uh, the possibility of uh, contracting the virus uh, in in um, uh, ways that you might not otherwise have thought about. So thinking things through um, very carefully is critical because one of the things this pandemic has done to everybody is make make us realize that uh, that what we do is complex, involves uh, whether we're simply playing on the field or sitting uh, in the stands, uh, interactions that are um, are conditions that 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 um, allow the virus to transmit be transmitted. And let's not fool ourselves: the virus is still fairly abundant. The case numbers are coming down, but there are many people out there who feel well and are infected. We don't know how many because. Um, we have not yet mounted the kind of uh, population-wide testing that needs to be done to, to assure us of, um, that, the, that the number of infected people is declining. We're speaking with Dr. Harold Varmus, the former director of the National Institutes of Health and a Nobel laureate. Uh, Dr. Varmus, you meet regularly uh, online with nine other prominent immunologists, virologists, and epidemiologists, uh, all of you hoping to find a way out of this crisis for the country and for the world. As, as a group, where do you think we in the U.S. are heading right now with this pandemic? Well, there's no doubt that the that we're on the for the most part on uh, a slowly declining slope of uh, of infections. Uh, at least in the, the areas where the virus is hit first. Now, there are, other, there are parts of the country, and we do have to think about different areas of the country differently. Uh, and the number of tests for virus or tests for um, evidence that people have been exposed to the virus, which is demonstrated by the appearance of antibodies in the blood, that all, all these signs indicate that, uh, that we're heading in the right direction. But to say that is not to say... The crisis is over. It's far from over. The virus is abundant in many places, and as we attempt to return to normal life, uh, we have to think about two things. One is um, what steps we're willing to take toward normal behavior, and secondly, I think it's critical that we think about new ways to do things, new ways to watch sports, new ways to conduct our business, uh, new ways to think about the economy. Um, it's important to remember that uh, that that while we have over 15% unemployment, we also have about 85% employment. People are getting their paychecks, and uh, at least in my case, uh, I, because I'm up here in the countryside and not shopping very much, we're not going out to dinner, um, money is accumulating. We've got to find ways to get that money moving, whether it's towards the support of athletes and, and athletic teams or whether it's to support small businesses and to be sure that money is turning over. 
uh, you know, we have to just think in different ways about the economy because we're until there is the kind of security that's uh, afforded by having either life-saving life-saving therapies so that people don't die of this, or better yet, a vaccine. Uh, we're going to have trouble with this virus. Uh, some some infectious agents disappear as an epidemic wanes, but in this case, there are reasons to think that's not going to happen. This virus seems to be transmitted quite efficiently. People are infectious when they don't have any symptoms. Uh, all these things suggest that, uh, that we're going to have a hard time getting rid of this virus uh, until, until we have um, a vaccine and uh, until we feel more secure because we have therapies that protect us from dying of those symptoms. And as you have all read, um, this is not a pleasant, a pleasant disease. It's very unpleasant, and uh, it ends up, uh, especially among the elderly and people who are comp- compromised by other illnesses, uh, a pretty deadly uh, idea. And it's not, it's not fair to say, well, life is ris- risky. Let's just go ahead and resume the sports we love. We have to be really cautious about the, con- the ways in which uh, the virus is being allowed to spread um, and uh, the way in which people who've gone to a, a baseball game can carry virus home to, to elderly people, people with other kinds of, uh, of uh, health conditions that predispose them to the lethal consequences of infection. With that being the case, Dr. Varmus, you know, we're talking about Major League Baseball has a plan for July. Uh, the NBA and the NHL are trying to figure out plans, uh, you know, to start up their seasons again. They're not talking about fans right now. But all the people who might be required to be at these games, in addition to the players and the coaches and the managers, is there a safe way to do it now? Yeah, well, you know, safe is a, is a, is a word that uh, is always hard to interpret because there's no absolutely safe thing, just as there's no absolutely safe way to drive a car. So you have to decide what, how much risk are you willing to take? Can you find some ways to reduce risk without, without uh, impairing the integrity of the game? And, you know, you look at, at different sports and, and uh, it becomes quite clear that, uh, that playing singles tennis, for example, is probably something you can, you can arrange to do fairly safely. Uh, maybe you don't have as many linesmen and umpires as we, and ball boys as we usually have. Um, but, uh, you know, with a little bit of precaution, you probably can make the game pretty damn safe. Um, maybe the same is true for baseball. Um, one has, and if you combine it with uh, abundant testing to try to detect people who are infected but not symptomatic, um, uh, maybe you can make it uh, reach the level uh, which people are willing to take risk. But uh, we don't want to deny the risk. We need to think a little bit more, ima- more imaginatively about how uh, we restore the game and how we restore the, the ways in which we observe the games. Uh, for example, I, I think it would be um, unsavory to almost anybody to think about going to a basketball game in which the, the amphitheater was was filled to the to the to the ceiling with with people who were um, sitting close together and screaming for their for their favorite team and favorite players. Uh, that's just a a, a cauldron of, uh, of opportunity for 
transmitting the virus. Dr. Harold Varmus, the former director of the National Institutes of Health and the National Cancer Institute, president of Memorial Sloan Kettering in New York, co-recipient of the 1980 Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine. Dr. Varmus, we've never had anyone as distinguished as you on this show before. It's, it's, oh, I doubt it's, that. No, tr- trust <laughs> me. me I, um, my aspirations are continually being uh, flaunted at, uh, on the tennis court, so I, I have a lot more admiration for people who rank in the top thousand in this country than, than uh, anyone you'd have for me. You know, you talked in our last segment about um, uh, your fondness for tennis as a player and as a fan, and there are plans now afoot, you know, to have a U.S. Open this year, to have a French Open in the fall. Wimbledon's been canceled. What do you hear about those plans? What do you think? Well, I think, uh, um, we, you know, we've got to be Think, cautious about how we modulate the game so that we can make it uh, interesting enough and uh, economically viable and uh, yet confer pleasure um, uh, to the fans and the sense of security to the players. Uh, and it just means giving these, these uh, uh, athletic encounters a, a lot of thought because uh, I do think much as I love the sport um, and much as we get pleasure from these things, uh, that there are more essential parts of our society that have to be kept intact for this year um, to allow us to, to, to eat and to drink safe water and to uh, get uh, uh, materials from place to place and provide the health care workers with things they need to keep people not just people who have COVID-19, but uh, anybody who's ill um, in uh, reasonable, with reasonable chance of uh, getting appropriate care. So um, I think uh, this is an occasion when, when sports uh, have to be prepared to, uh, uh, to delay things in, in hopes of uh, avoiding a recurrence of the epidemic. And I think you know, all of us are concerned about what happens as we try to open life up, that we're watching uh, with uh, interest and concern with ha- what's happened in some countries that have um, turned the dial back a little too quickly and uh, seen recurrence. And we know this is likely to happen. Not enough people have been exposed to the virus to have anything that resembles herd immunity. We don't have a vaccine yet. We don't have uh, highly effective drugs that would keep people who got infected from dying. So we have to proceed with caution. Um, you know, if we miss a season, it's not the end of the world. And uh, uh, more important to think about what happens to our society next year and be sure we're not uh, decimated by by, the, by this virus. This is a formidable, formidable foe. As we said in our first segment, uh, Dr. Varmus, um, you've been meeting with a group of prominent uh, fellow virologists, epidemiologists, immunologists um, to, to find a way out of this crisis, uh, looking for solutions. When you were at the National Institutes of Health, uh, you championed the establishment of the Dale and Betty Bumpers uh, Vaccine Center. Um, is a vaccine, I mean, we keep hearing at least a year away. Uh, is that what you and your colleagues are thinking right now? I think that's that's fair. Um, I think most of us would say quite a good likelihood we'll have a vaccine. Um, not clear yet how how great it will be, but hopefully it'll be a pretty good one. Um, but it, you know, it's it, it's not a sure thing we'll have a, a good vaccine. But I think it's very it's reasonably likely. That's the first uncertainty. And the second is the timing. We've never 
gotten a vaccine approved in less than about a year and a half, and uh, even that is fast. Um, there are new technologies for making vaccines. They're, they're novel scientifically and promising, but uh, you know, most vaccines are made by techniques that have been around for longer than some of these new ones. Um, the, the vaccines that are currently being tested are, in many cases, uh, uh, designed with these new, more rapid technologies, but doesn't mean that those technologies will be effective. And, you know, with this, many things we're not yet sure about, like uh, how, how uh, well the natural virus induces immunity against reinfection, how long that will last. And those are all going to be important determinants of how successful vaccine production is. But there's a, there is a national effort um, that's being well-supported, um, uh, and uh, I think what we can do is uh, encourage the government and the, and the private sector to invest heavily in the, in the production of a vaccine. Uh, and test it as rapidly as possible, and uh, then um, find incentives for scaling it up quickly. Because you know, there's, there's going to be, a, when there is a good vaccine, there's going to be a major delivery problem. You really want to vaccinate everybody on Earth. That's, uh, that's over eight billion people, and we're that's going to take some time. Um, obviously, there'll be an interest in trying to get the vaccine to places where the virus is most prevalent, um, but. Uh, not, not going to be a time for putting one country's interest over another. Uh, the, the, the difficult part will be providing the vaccine to places where people are most susceptible to widespread infection. In the absence of a vaccine, um, and not just the existence of a vaccine, but actually everybody uh, getting vaccinated, can you see... Um, Fans back in the stands, tens of thousands of them at baseball games and football games and so forth. Eventually, not yet. <laughs> but, but even even if there is no vaccine, you can see that happening again. Uh, I think it, there are too many other contingencies. If, if we're thinking about five years from now, it's it's very difficult to predict because you know, some some viruses, even pretty uh, um, pretty damaging ones, uh, recede and. If we have enough testing, we can know that uh, that there that you test uh, ten thousand people and you don't find anybody who's carrying the virus, and you know that uh, the population is as uh, the virus just disappeared. That that does happen when the virus is being transmitted at a very low rate. Eventually, disappears. Um, the other question is whether we have treatments that can keep people from uh, from uh, suffering the the severe consequences of the respiratory inadequacy and the death that, that are, are found in, 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 in this disease. So it's really hard to answer that question. And uh, I think one of the most troubling things, is, as implied by your question, is that uh, you know, what happens if several years from now we still have no vaccine and, uh, and uh, the majority of the population has not been exposed to the virus, people are not immune, or they have short-term, not long-term immunity, and uh, then how how much do we change the way we operate? And that's, uh, that's a very troubling idea. I think right now we have to focus on on the probabilities and uh, you know, what's likely to happen here, um, but keeping in mind that uh, things don't work out as one might have predicted, that we have some backup plans to deal with the, the contingency of um, of uh, ongoing infection and uh, ongoing severe disease and death. Dr. Harold Varmus, 
uh, the Nobel laureate, the former director of the National Institutes of Health. It's, it has been a pleasure and an honor. And, um, I hope we can have you on again in the future. Talk about, uh, uh, Plain Bridge and Freeport growing up with my uncle Bill. That would be fun. Good. Jeremy, thank you very much. Very nice to talk to you. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. If you're like me, around 50 years old, well, I'm actually exactly 50, but if you're around that age and you were a baseball fan as a kid in the 1970s and 1980s, there was one player in the game, perhaps above all others, who exemplified greatness and professionalism and elegance at the plate. Rodney Klein Carew, the Hall of Famer, the seven-time batting champion, one of the great players of his or any era. His new book is One Tough Out, Fighting Off Life's Curveballs, and it's a pleasure to welcome to The Sporting Life, Rod Carew. Rod, thank you for being with us. Thanks, uh, Jeremy. It's, it's good to be here. Rod, a lot of people know that uh, um, you had health issues, serious health issues in the last few years that required a heart transplant. How are you feeling now? Well, I feel good, actually. You know, um, they told me I have another 15 years. The doctors did, so, you know, I'm just banking on that. But, you know, I feel good, real good. What are you doing these days? Well, I'm hanging out with my wife. <laughs> you know, we try to do as much as we can together with this crazy virus going around, you know, uh, we spend a lot of time together. And before it was announced, I was in spring training with the twins, uh, working with some of the young players. Rod, your story, which you tell here so eloquently in your new book, One Tough Out, um, there are a lot of triumphs, uh, as you would expect, a lot of remarkable achievements, as many of us are aware. And there's a lot of hardship, too. Not only your uh, health issues in the last few years, but the death of your daughter when she was 17 from leukemia, your upbringing. You were born in Panama, uh, but raised mostly in New York. What was it like writing about these things, telling these stories, many of which uh, you know, were so painful to experience, of course? Well, I think the, the most painful part was... Uh about Michelle, you know, not so much about my upbringing and what I went through, but about, you know, Michelle, you know, she was just a young lady getting ready to go to nursing school. And, and then she was um, diagnosed with uh, leukemia. But what surprised me about her was that she, she never cried a day. You know, she just said that, you know, the doctors are going to clean me up and I'll be back out there again you know, trying to help save someone's life. So uh, I, I couldn't believe it. You know, I couldn't believe her reaction and the way she felt. Why? Well, you know, you think that a 17-year-old would start saying, you know, why me? And, you know, I don't want to die and start crying and things like that. But she, she just, you know, she was strong. She said, you know, the doctors told her, you know, what she had and, they're going to clean her up and make her well again. And that's all she uh, really believed in at the time. We're speaking with Rod Carew. His new book, a memoir, is One Tough Out, Fighting Off Life's Curve Curveballs. Now, um, 
I think most people would agree there can't be anything uh, more difficult, more traumatic than losing a child. How did you uh, how did you deal with the trauma at the time, Rod? You know, I have faith, you know, and um, she was a great kid. I mean, everyone loved her. And then when the big man upstairs decided that it was her time, you know, um, I have so much faith in him that, you know, I never questioned him or asked why Michelle. You know, it was just her time, you know, and, you know, we all have our time scheduled from the day we were born. So, um, you know, I just went on and, and did what she asked me to do is to stay involved and, you know, try and help kids. And I've had a golf tournament for the last 25 years that um, it's all about pediatric cancer. So, um, and it's doing real, real good things for, for a lot of kids. Rod, you know, there's a lot of pain here, and it's not easy talking about things that are painful. So why was it so important for you to write this book? Well, you know, God had given me a gift to, to see a baseball and hit a baseball. And so I felt that, you know, um, put the book out. I'm doing God's work. I'm trying to save lives. And um, letting people be aware of heart disease. And it's the number one killer in this country. And I want people to take care of themselves, take care of their bodies, and take care of that little ticker that he gives us uh, inside of our body to live. So hopefully, you know, we'll get some uh, good results from it. When you look back at your career in baseball and all the things uh, all the things you did, I, one thing that's vivid for me, as I said, I'm 50 years old, so I was... Eight years old, the 1978 All-Star Game. And I remember it. I don't remember where it was played. The only thing I remember, I, I remember I was such a big baseball fan in the All-Star Game. Back then especially was such a big deal. And that was the year after you'd hit 388. And uh, there were a lot of people hopeful that you would become the first since Williams to hit 400. And I remember in that game, what was it, two triples and two singles in the All-Star Game? Yeah, you know, it's funny, I hit two triples, and on the second one, I was sliding into third base, and Pete Rose was playing third base, and he started yelling, you know, that's a, trip. That's, that's a record. No one has ever done that before. <laughs> Pete would know. Yeah, he would know, you know. So I got up, and he says, you know, congratulations. No one has ever done what you just did, you know. So Pete knows about things in baseball that a lot of us don't know, you know, but um it was a great day for me. 77 was a big year for you, the year before that. I mean, there were, you know, in the, in the middle of, um, what I guess I would call your heyday, you were at the height of your powers. Um, no one had hit 388 since Ted Williams, uh, in the late fifties. No one had hit 400 since Williams in 1941. What was it like being locked in like that, that year? You know, it was a very uncanny year for me. It just seems that everything I hit found a hole. And what's crazy is that when I was at the plate, I would see that the infielders, middle infielders, shift a little bit. And then I'd hit the ball maybe, you know, two feet from where they were playing, that it would have been an out. 
but it went through for a base hit. So um, it was just crazy. The baseball seemed like it was a, a beach ball, <laughs> and it seemed like it was just floating up there and say, hit me, hit me, hit me, hit me where you want to, you know. So uh, it was a great, great season for me. Now, I know you know these numbers, Rod, but I'm going to read them for the benefit of our listeners. You won your first batting title in 69 when you were 23, 332. Then you won the batting title in 72, 318. You're a career 328 hitter in an era when there was a lot of diminished offensive production. It was really a pitcher's era. You won batting titles hitting 332, 318, 350, 364, 359, 388, and 333. You were an all-star 18 seasons in a row. Um I don't know what the question is, Rod. Right? <laughs> it just, it just still, I still marvel at, at what you achieved. Um, one of the things when I think about your career is the remarkable bat control and what you could do w- with a hand around the barrel of the bat. Why can't anyone bunt anymore, Rod? Well, they really don't try, you know, and it's so frustrating to, um, to see guys that have speed that could get on base easily. Uh, especially with the shift that's on that they're doing today, and they don't even attempt. Everyone wants to hit a home run because they figured or they thought that or think that uh, that's where they're going to make the big bucks. But I'm very frustrated with the game today because of that. And we work on it in spring training every single day. And then when the games start, they forget about it. You also write about uh, your difficult childhood and your father uh, in this book. As I said, you were born in Panama in 1945, uh, but you were raised mostly in New York, and you went to George Washington High School in Washington Heights, same high school that produced uh, Manny Ramirez, two pretty good uh, ball players. Um, how would you describe your childhood? Um, it was tough because I was a very sick kid. You know, I had rheumatic fever when I was growing up, and I, I almost died. Um, so my mom treated me, um, with kid gloves, you know, my dad thought that I should be more of a man, you know, and so we didn't have a good relationship and, um, you know, he drank a lot and, uh, I suffered the consequences. My mother and I suffered the consequences when he came home. But one thing that I had that kept me safe was baseball and my mom encouraged me to play you know she says you know keep keep going keep playing and and good things are going to happen and I told her I said mom all I want to do is play in front of 50,000 people because listening to the radio I couldn't believe that there were that many people in the stands uh until I found out you know differently but Baseball saved me. You know, I almost killed my dad uh, when he came home one night. He was really drunk. And I was about 12 years old. And he passed out on the bed and I said, here's my chance. And then my mom came running in and she says, don't forget baseball. And I stopped. I was just tired of the abuse. And... My mom being abused. Rod, 
what what do you remember? I mean, you're growing up in New York. It's it's the fifties, and you've got um, Willie Mays playing for the Giants at the Polo Grounds, just a couple of miles from where you're growing up. You got Mickey Mantle in the Bronx again, just over the river. Uh, you've got all those great players with the Dodgers out there. What what do you remember about uh, being a fan as a kid of New York baseball? Well, you know, it's crazy. I had never gone into Yankee Stadium, never went into the polo grounds, and um, I played right outside of Yankee Stadium Stadium on uh, McCombs Field. Right there, by the bridge. Yeah, right by the bridge. I used to hit some balls up on top of that bridge. But um, I used to hear the, the roar of the crowd, and I used to say to myself, you know, maybe one day I'll be playing in, in, in this place. and and the house that Ruth built. And as a kid, you know, you just, you dream and you wonder. And I was fortunate enough to um, to realize my dream. When did you know that you had not an ordinary, but an extraordinary talent for the game? Well, you know, every year players would ask, you know, what they're going to do to set goals. And, you know, sometimes those goals never were realized. And all I asked for was God to give me good health. And I was going to do good things for him. And that's, that's all I ever thought about. I was not playing for myself. I was playing for the almighty. And he took me through a great, a great career. And I, I thanked him every day. And I still do. We're speaking with Rod Carew, the baseball great, one of the greatest ever to play the game, second baseman, first baseman, 18-time. I've got it right. It's 18, isn't it, Rod? 18-time All-Star. Yeah. An All-Star in every season in which he played in the majors except his final season, 1985. Split between his career, the Minnesota Twins, and at the time, California Angels. 3,053 hits, a 328 career batting average, rookie of the year, MVP of the American League. Um you achieved all these great things in baseball. Um, what what gives the game its spiritual element beyond just the physical? Where people think about baseball in a way, uh, they think of it as home. They think of it as comfort. They think of it, it saved your life. And what is it that's special about baseball? Well, that's what I thought. It saved my life. Um I don't know. It's just, you know, growing up and playing stickball and thinking about Willie Mays and Jackie and Roy and Ted and all those great players and, you know, hoping that one day you can meet them or, you know, play with them. So, I mean, it kept me transfixed on the game. And um, sure enough, I was fortunate enough to to meet some of those guys and play against, you know, some of those guys and make Roger, all those guys. So um, I'm, I'm fortunate. I'm lucky. Right. Before we, um, before we let you go, I don't want to embarrass you. Um, but when I was a kid, I mentioned this before the, uh, before we went on the air, I, I was lucky enough to go to spring training with my dad, Dick Schaap in 1978. I was a huge baseball fan and I still have among my possessions a Polaroid he took of, of me and you. And if I could show it to you, maybe I'll send it to you if you're interested. I, I've got a look on my face. Um, 
it's it's exactly the look you would expect to see from an eight-year-old kid who loves baseball, who's meeting his hero. And you had, um, as I mentioned before, you had this effect on people. You seem to kind of rise above... Um, rise above the game in a way. You were elevated. You were elegant. You were graceful. You carried yourself um, with such uh, such purpose and such class. Um, you, you know, you, you didn't you didn't seem to be. Um, nobody ever brought you down to the level of like, uh, you know. The scuffles and that kind of stuff. How did you? How did you manage to stay above the fray for twenty years in the big leagues? In the way that I'm describing, if that makes any sense at all, Rod. Well, you know, I had two great teachers. Number one, Tony Oliva, who, when I came up as a rookie, I uh, roomed with him. He took me as his roommate, and we roomed together for eleven years. And then he became a coach, and I couldn't room with him anymore. But he taught me a lot of things how to carry myself, how to handle myself, how to, how to speak to people. And we still have that great relationship going on today when we go end up in spring training together and walking around the camp and, you know, saying hello to people and, and trying to work with some of the young players. The other guy was Harmon Killebrew. We, um, Harmon and I used to have ice cream eating contests. And... Um, <laughs> He always thought that he he's could, a bigger uh, guy. I mean, he, he's a bigger. That's that's a tough one to win. Yeah, we go on the road and we maybe go to lunch, and and there goes a the challenge. And um, I finally started out eating him, and he says, "I can't believe that you're doing doing that to an old man." I says, "Charlie, you're not old. You just can't beat me anymore. You know, I don't. I'm a bottomless <laughs> pit. You know, and." <laughs> The lesson that I learned from him was, Junior, you're going to continue to have a great career. And I want you to know one thing, that it doesn't cost anything to be nice to people. You know, and and that's the way I've tried to live my life, you know. Being nice to people and uh, putting a smile on their faces. And I continue to do that today. I don't think there's any. Any doubt about that? Rodney Klein Carew, the Hall of Famer, one of baseball's all-time greats, his new book, One Tough Out, Fighting Off Life's Curveballs. Rod, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. And, you know, I've got to give kudos to the name of the book, uh, to Reggie Jackson. Oh, really? He's the one that came up with the name. Yeah. He was going to write something uh, on the back of the book, and... um, then when he said uh, "One Tough Out," uh, we decided to name the book "One Tough Out." It's a great title. Yeah, yeah, it's a great title. Your 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 old teammate Reginald Martinez Jackson. Yep, uh, we we were we were good friends, and we still are good friends. And um, he's he's a good man. You know, people don't understand Reggie, but. <laughs> Reggie would give you the shirt off his back. Uh, I've known Reggie uh, my whole life, and uh, he was he was my idol when I was a kid. I was at Game Six in '77 when he hit the three home runs, and that that like turned on a, a light bulb in my head. I was like, "Wow, nobody more exciting in the history of the game to watch than Reggie Jackson." No doubt about it. Yes, definitely. 
Thank you, Rod. Thank you, sir. And uh, it's, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having joined us. I'm Jeremy Schapp, and this has been The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio. We're on every Saturday and every Sunday morning at 6 Eastern Time.